But that's not the word that Paul uses, and that's not the definition. We looked at this. This is from Philippians 4, verse 11. The Greek word there, uh, autarkes, comes is a split word. It's a compound word. Autos meaning self, and arkeo meaning satisfied or sufficient. And so it's the idea of being self-sufficient, not needing assistance from outside. And so in the context of Paul's usage there in Philippians 4.11, he's saying that he had learned to be content, that is self-satisfied, not needing something from an outside source in all the circumstances he might encounter, whether it would be humble means or prosperity of being filled, of being hungry, of having abundance or suffering need. In all the circumstances of life, Paul says, I have learned this secret of being content, self-satisfied. Now, in essence, what Paul is saying here is that he has learned to be in charge of himself instead of being bound by circumstances, of being reacting to whatever's going on all the time. He didn't need changes to occur in his life in order to be fulfilling the very purpose for which he lived. Circumstances didn't have to change. The situation did not have to get better. It could stay as it was, and he could still be content. He had learned the secret of being someone who no longer reacted to his environment, but instead would respond to it with godliness, regardless of the environment. Have you learned that secret yet? Are you able to control yourself, regardless of your circumstances, all the while feeling all the the personal emotion that could be involved with it, all the empathy, all the sympathy, all the hurt, all the joy that is just part of life. Can you live life to its fullest? Or as I think it was Swindoll had entitled his commentary on Ecclesiastes, living life on the ragged edge, experiencing it all, and yet still be content, fully in control. Or do the things around you determine what you're going to be like? I also explained in my sermon a couple weeks ago why so many in America, including Christians, are not content. We have this abundance of so much around us, but I think you will find that a lot of people, even on Thursday, they may have had a feast and probably would still be discontent. They find something they don't like and they'll camp on that. Well, one of the reasons that people are not content, over in Ephesians 2, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but just by way of brief review, we find that those who are not true Christians cannot be content because their lives are not bound up with what is going to enable you to be content. He says in Ephesians 2 that non-Christians, those without Christ, are dead in their trespasses and sins in which they formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh, and the mind or by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. That is the state of the non-Christian. That is ex- exactly where they're at. And so they can't have contentment. And for the immature Christian, the same thing's going to be true. It's going to be very difficult to have what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 4. Well, part of that is because, again, just reviewing it, the non-Christian is dead in trespasses and sin. That's their state. That's how we were all born. They're separated from God. Now, they may have feelings, some sort of emotion towards something that they think is God. But most often, it's a demon posing as God 
or it's a self-produced God of their own imagination, but it's not the true God. And so there's no personal relationship they have with the one who has made them, the one that has created them. And without that, you're not going to be able to be content, as we're going to see here in a few moments. Another aspect of the non-Christian is they cannot obey or please God. That's an impossibility for them because they don't even understand what God wants. These are spiritual things. They're not spiritually discerning for them. They can't do it. They live life according to the course of this world. In other words, they live just seeking whatever the world has to offer, wherever joy for the moment they can get, whatever happiness they can grab. That's what they're after. And so they go from thing to thing, hoping that they're going to find some meaning in that. They're also under the control of Satan, who is described here as the prince of the power of the air. That's a euphemism for Satan. And he is the one who is in control because he's the one who is guiding the spirit of the sons of disobedience. And that's where we all were before we became Christians. That's the state of those who are not Christians. How can you be content if that's what your life is like? You're busy trying to find something, but what is it? Now, as humans, we have this longing, though, to have some purpose in our life, some meaning to find some reason why we're here and to make something out of it. And so we have this tendency to indulge the lust for flesh as part of that. Now, let's face it, even as Christians, we still tend to want to cater to our physical bodies, don't we? Uh, How many of you did that on Thursday? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay, I did. In fact, Diane made an extra pie, so we took it home and we ate it again. So we had two pieces of pumpkin pie and a piece of apple pie, and you can't get better than that, right? Well, of course, you could add lemon meringue pie and chocolate pie. and Well, I like pie. All right? We have this tendency, we want to cater to something that's satisfying. We, uh, we like to have our physical around, uh, surroundings uh, comfortable. How many of you like these chairs better than those old, old ones, right? All right? It's comfortable. We like to do that. Uh, how many think it's a little stuffy in here? Okay? Click on the air so we can get a little something. All right? We cater to that. We all want that. When it's summer, you want the air conditioning on. When it's finally as cool as you want in the summer, you want to turn the heat on. That's the way we are, isn't it? Okay? We do that. Here it describes as indulging the desires of the flesh or a lust of the flesh, but there's also this indulging the desires of the mind. We want to satisfy our mental appetites as well. Whatever will absorb our attention or energy and, and stimulate us intellectually, we'll do that too. Or if we're tired and we don't want to think, we'll find some way to amuse ourselves. That's just the way we are as humans. But that's not the way God wants us to live. That's not the way to gain the contentment that Paul is talking about. People pursue after fame and reputation or knowledge and talent or positions and power and all these kinds of things. But apart from Christ, apart from living with Him in your life and actually His life living through you, all those things control you and make you their slave rather than the other way around. And that's how most of the world lives. They're controlled by the things that they should be in control of. Without Jesus Christ, you're spiritually dead. You're controlled by Satan. You're by nature a child of wrath. There's no hope of true contentment. And yet this desire, this desire for peace, this desire for happiness, something, some kind of meaning is strong. So there's got to be some way to put, put things together where you have a semblance of some meaning. And so man has done that, often controlled by Satan. Now, we went over this last week, and again, very briefly, we're going to look at some worldviews.
the real tragedy here is that in looking at these views, so many professing Christians either continue in them or succumb to their influence and live just like the rest of the world or much like the rest of the world, maybe a few differences. There are those that would say they reject these views but, and believe the Bible, but in practical terms, you watch their life and they're still living the same way. Well, what are they? Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about deism, the idea that God is, in, is there, but he's not really involved, he's impersonal. He created everything and then abandoned it. Uh, contentment then is sought in trying to figure out something and make it work. It's a futile thing. Ecclesiastes 1 deals with that. But that's the quest to make some sense out of it. Solomon sought everything and said at the end it was futile to try and find meaning apart from God. Many Christians end up as practical deists. They lose this sense that God is personally involved in their life. He's there somewhere, but you know what? In practical daily life, it doesn't make any difference. Why bother to pray? Why bother to seek to serve him? Why bother to do these things or even read my Bible? I mean, God's going to do what he's going to do. It just becomes he's not really involved with me personally. I'm just going on with life. You get into just kind of getting by. You might even descend into fatalism, the accompanying complacency, indifference. If those things mark your life, you may have fallen into deism. God is involved in our lives. Individually, he is personally concerned about each one of us as individuals. But when we slop over and don't take much attention to that personal relationship, we are falling into a deistic view. Then there's naturalism. Naturalism, there is no God. It's the philosophical basis for evolution. There is only nature. And so life has meaning only in the here and now. That's it. You got it now? Do whatever you can. So contentment is only revolving around circumstances, period. If they're good, hey, it's great. If they're bad, well, we've got to change the circumstances. This is the view that's promoted hedonism, materialism, which is rampant in our society. If you live life in the pursuit of pleasure, or if you think life will be satisfying if you can get ahead just a little bit more, then in practical terms, you have fallen into naturalism. Your life's not bound up with God. It's bound up in present circumstances. There's also uh, nihilism. And this is a child of naturalism. It boldly asserts there is no ultimate meaning in life. Life is an absurd accident. And therefore, why try? It's the I quit mentality. And a lot of people have checked out. They'll check out with many different things. They may find some form of amusement they get addicted to, or it could be drugs, alcohol, something to deaden the pain. And then there are many that they check out completely through life. They commit suicide. Unfortunately, this is rampant in our society too. Existentialism is another one. It views life as absurd, but since you're still here, you've got to go on and make choices and you might as well live. It's not quite as bad as nihilism. But contentment and meaning come from doing your own thing and not allowing yourself to be subjected to those around you. Not being controlled by the world. Why? Because they consider the world stupid. It has this similarity with uh, nihilism. The result of it is a pursuit of self-autonomy and a difference to others that comes out of that. If you think that life will be satisfying when no one can tell you what to do, when you are the captain of your own ship, the master of your own fate, then in practical terms you have an existential view. It's affected you. There's also pantheism. This is Eastern myth 
mysticism. It's a multifaceted beast. It's kind of hard to succinctly describe it, but simply put, for the pantheist, physical life is relatively unimportant, so only the bare essentials are done. It's an ascetic approach to life. For them, you're looking for a nirvana. That is when you've reached this where you become one with the universe and you no longer exist. The absence of pain is more beneficial then than experiencing it. And that's the idea of nirvana. Peace and tranquility are gained by withdrawing from the world through meditation and solitude. Now, there is a certain satisfaction come from that, but it's a satisfaction of indifference. Or as one person put it, you become a happy rock. You've got a smile on your face, but you're a rock that's just there. The contentment that Paul speaks of, though, here in Philippians 4, involves interaction with this sin-sickened world for both the pleasures and the pains of human existence. You experience everything full on. True Christianity is for thinking people. It's not for those who are longing for a mystical experience where their minds are turned off and left behind somewhere. It involves your intellect as well as your emotion. All of you, all that makes you what you are as a person is involved in Christianity. In pantheism, there is a wrong elevation of spiritual over mind and actions. True Christianity takes in all that you are. And then humanism, that's the latest progression of these worldviews. Rather than losing yourself in the universe or the gods as in pantheism, meaning in life is found as you go deeper into yourself, into your inner conscience. And in fact, the more this is pursued, you find that man ultimately becomes his own god, or at least a substitute god. It all rests on him. It can be found in many fringe groups of Christianity and in cults. It's expressed in a lot of self-help books. If you're looking to yourself or thinking that somewhere if I get down in a deeper conscience and something's revealed and then I'll be okay, you're falling into a humanism. The solution isn't in you, it's in God who affects you and changes you. See, the only worldview that can bring the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about here in Philippians especially verse 4, verse 11, is Christian theism, biblical Christian theism, because there is a God. He is our creator. He is personal. He is present. He has revealed himself to us. Not only that, but he has demonstrated his love for us and he has provided for my sin problem by uh, having Jesus Christ take my place. That's personal involvement. That's personal love for each one of us as individuals. Different kind of God, isn't it? And he has done this to bring me back into a relationship with him. That's what this is about. And because I belong to God, my life has meaning bound up in him. He is the creator, so he knows why I'm here. He knows why he created me, right? And so my existence has to come, and my meaning and purpose in it has to come from him. And as I walk with him and find out, then I can be content, because in that is why I am here. And so it becomes bound in him. Only Christian theism can bring the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about here. One where circumstances don't control you, but one where you react uh, in godliness. Well, what is the secret then of being content? That's the question we've been asking. Again, flip over to Philippians 4 if you're not there as well, and let's make sure we understand the context here of what Paul's talking about. Because he wants you to experience what he has learned. You're not going to be there automatically. You won't be there tomorrow. But tomorrow you can be farther along than you are today if you will apply 
what he says he learned. Starting in verse 10, Paul says this, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which will increase to your account. But I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now remember, Paul writes this in what situation? He's imprisoned. This isn't great. He doesn't know if he's going to get out or he's going to die. He knows that's a possibility. He is truly thankful for what the Philippians have sent. And yet, he is more thankful for what it demonstrates on their part than the gift itself. Part of that comes out of his understanding of contentment and living in it. Now, in verse 11, Paul tells him he's learned the secret of being content. He learned it. He has reached a condition of Christian maturity in which he could remain completely in control of himself and even rejoice regardless of what was going on in his present situation. Now, he still felt the full range of emotion. Paul had likes and dislikes, just like you and I do. He, uh, he doesn't have to like the circumstance to be able to do what he says he's doing. But the circumstances are no longer hindering him from living a fulfilling life. That's the point. Whether abounding or suffering need, whether he has a little or an abundance, whether it's the Thanksgiving feast or whatever leftovers happen to be scrounged up on Saturday afternoon, it's okay with him. Abounding or little, he's learned this. Whether he's getting good news or bad, he can be content because he's matured enough to apply the principles of the Christian life in being content with God being content with what God's provided, being content that God's in action no matter what's going on with me personally. Now, the secret's not hidden. It's not concealed here, okay? This isn't something only a rocket scientist can, can, can find out. It's for everybody. It stares at you right from the text, and yet most people miss it because we tend to too often take verses and rip them out of context and memorize them, and then when we find them in context, we can't think about the context. The key here is verse 13. This is the secret Paul had learned. Again, not really a secret, because it's right there in the text. Very open. But this is what had happened in his life where he now understands, I've learned to be content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, or through the one who strengthens me, and of course that's referring to Christ. Now, too many of us have memorized this verse apart from his contracts. I did as a kid. 
memorize the verse and, you know, you go wild with all sorts of speculation on applying it without a reference to what Paul's actually saying here. The context here is being content in all circumstances. It goes back to chapter 4, verse 4. Being able to rejoice in all circumstances. Not just tolerate it, but rejoice in it. And yet, for the most part, we think that verse 13, in terms of either doing some great thing for God, like Moses crossing the Red Sea, or having to endure some horrible thing that God's going to uh, miraculously save us. Uh, remember uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Or what's their real names? We were told last Sunday. Who, who paid attention last Sunday? All right, you get the A. Okay? These are Hebrew names. Names that praise God. That's what we tend to think. I can do all things. I can endure this. But that's not the context here. Certainly, the principle applies in the worst scenarios, the worst situations. But Paul's talking about daily life. Where you are right now. Whatever's going on in your life right now. He says, Christ strengthens you. You can be content right now because Christ strengthens you. That's the point. Now, sometimes people slop over and... I have to admit, when I was in high school and college, this was a common thing around my friends. I can do all things through Christ. I can ace that test through Christ, even though I didn't study. I'll just claim his promise. No, that's not what it says, is it? Or, um, uh, I can win this race because Christ is going to strengthen me and I'm going to beat everybody else, even though I haven't practiced. That's not what the text says. That's not the context. That's not what it's dealing with. That is, that's, that's foolish selfishness. The all things that you can do here, it's the context, isn't it? I can be content, whether in humble means or prosperity, of being filled or going hungry, of having abundance or suffering need. No matter what my situation, verse 11 ties to verse 13 through verse 12. All my circumstances of daily life, I can be content... I can learn to be content because in all these situations there is one who will strengthen me to do so. That's the secret. But it's not a secret, is it? Actually, it's just Christian maturity. But you don't mature in a day. You mature over experience as God changes you. Now, that's the good part here, okay? It is something that you have the ability to learn. But it's not something you do on your own. In fact, you cannot do it on your own. You must do it through Christ. Okay? You must be made alive together with Christ, as Ephesians uh, 2.5 says. You've got to know Him. You were born and dead, dead in trespass and sin. You need to be made alive in Him before any of this can ever happen. Isn't that the first step of Christian maturity? You've got to be born. Born again. Okay? You have to be transferred out of Satan's kingdom and its bondage to sin. You've got to be brought over into the kingdom of Christ, which has slavery to righteousness. And only Jesus Christ can do that in your life. You also have to change your mind about how you're living so that you no longer live according to these, one of these uh, worldviews I already talked about. Now, I'm certainly not going to ask you to raise hands, but I would venture to say that probably everybody here is affected by one of these worldviews to one degree or another. We fall into that. We have the pressures around us to fall into that. We have to change our minds. We have to be thinking differently and develop a biblical theistic worldview. 
There is this God that loves us personally, that created you and me for a purpose that he has in mind. We need to fulfill it by seeking him out. Now, you're not left alone in this, but without that mind change, there is no hope. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16 states, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually praised. That's where we all start out. But when Christ comes in our life and does this work of regeneration, we not only get uh, uh, a new heart, but that heart isn't just emotion. It's our mind. We have a different ability to think than we had before. We find the Holy Spirit starts teaching us, 1 John 2, 27. Do you realize that all I ever do up here is just bat my lips together? And there's, you know, some of you are probably thinking that, and you're ready to go to sleep. But that's all I can ever do. If you're going to learn anything here today, it has to be the Holy Spirit that takes the truth of His Word. My job is simply to try to explain this the best I can, but the Holy Spirit is the one who has to apply that in your life. You've got to be walking with Him. And as you are... He's the one who's going to convict you of all the areas. I've had people come to me sometimes and say, is, well, they were mad, you know, is, why were you mentioning me in specific? I said, and they go on and tell me about some problem they had. I said, well, I'm sorry, I didn't even know you had a problem. That wasn't me, that's the Holy Spirit. He convicts and brings you to the place you need to be to be conformed to the image of God. And that's the promise. He is the one that teaches us. We also have the fact that the mind of, of Christ is developed in us. 1 Corinthians 2.16, it goes on. We have the mind of Christ because of regeneration. Christ living within us. A different way of looking at things and understanding things. Now certainly there's work we must do as we resist the world's effort to conform us to its image. We have to do that. We have to not be conformed to the, the pressures of the world to conform us, but instead be renewed by the transforming, or be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12.2. But again, it's the Holy Spirit working in you that does this. You're not going to understand this all on your own. We have Him working in us. So with that, then, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I don't live the Christian life by my own power. I live it in the power of God. Now, the power of God is available to you. It's available to you to live in all circumstances. Over in 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes this. Is that the right verse? Um, uh, verse 3, not 1, it's verse 3. His divine power, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruptions in the world by lust. And then he goes on and talks about what your responsibilities are. But notice here, his divine power has already granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's already belonging to you. He's already done His work. Now, there's some things you need to do, but He's already done that work. It is available to you. It's sort of like these electrical plugs up, up in front or on the stage. The power's there. 
I've got to plug into it, though. I can't complain if the light's not working, if I don't bother to plug in. All right? The power is available. He's doing it. Now, at the same time, we find that uh, Matthew 28:18, uh, Jerry Smith last week talked a little bit about keeping your priorities right, and he talked about evangelism. We had a whole seminar on that thing. Do you evangelize in your own power? Do you tell people the good news of Jesus Christ in your own power? No. Matthew 28:18, all power is given to Christ, who then sends us out with whatever power is needed to accomplish His will. Matthew 28:18. We received the power to do this when the Holy Spirit came upon us in salvation. Acts 1.8, power came upon them. Romans chapter 8, the power of God working our life that no matter what the circumstances, God is at work. He can make it good for those who love Him or called according to His purpose. He has transcended all the things that are necessary in our life that we are never going to be separated from His love and have a message we can share. That's God's power working through us. The power of the gospel is the power for salvation for everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. And we, according to Ephesians 3.16, are to live in the strength and power of His Spirit in the inner man. Okay, that's all saying is God's power is available to us at any point in time. It's there. There's not a lack at the generator. Okay? The electricity's there. Have you plugged into it? Now, that is the secret of contentment. I can do all things through Him, that is Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. I can live my life in such a way that regardless of circumstances, I can fulfill my purpose of existence in bringing glory to God. He has made His power available to me that I can do what honors Him the most no matter what else is going on. I can do that. And so my life is no longer controlled by what happens to me in my circumstances. It's not the situations anymore. It is the Holy Spirit working through me and controlling me that gets me to respond. That's a big difference. Those without Christ have no choice. The only thing they can do is respond to circumstances in their best wisdom and uh, self-control, whatever else they want to put. It's only up to them. But in Christ, we have the Holy Spirit in us. By being obedient to Him, I respond the way God wants me to do. That's contentment. That's what Paul's talking about. So instead of being a thermometer, and you know what thermometers do, they fluctuate with the temperature, right? Up, down, up, down. You're a thermostat. What does a thermostat do? Stays the same. It changes the environment by its own reactions, right? That's what we're to be as Christians, thermostats. Not reacting to our environment, but changing our environment as we react in a godliness. Now, wait a minute, you say. You understand that. But... Um, it doesn't seem to make much difference in your life. Why is this power in my life so weak, you say? Um, I'm telling you to be Christ-like, but you struggle with even simple temptations. Well, what's wrong? Flip over to Matthew chapter 7, 17, verse 14, and let's look at an example here. What happens? Why is it that Christians are so weak when all this power is available to them? Now, Jesus in this passage has previously given his disciples the power to cast out demons. And they have done it before. But here we find there's a man with a son who is demonized. He's begging the Lord for help because disciples aren't able to cast out the demon. Verses 14 through 16. So Jesus, verse 17, casts out the demon. 
And then in verse 19, the disciples come to Jesus and ask this, why could we not cast them out? They're confused. They were able to do it before. Then look at verse 20. Here's the answer. Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible to you. The disciples had the power, but they could not appropriate the power because their faith was too small. They didn't believe God enough. That's the same problem we have with the power of God in our own life. It is available to us, but we don't use it because our faith is so small. We don't trust him enough to do what he says. To step forward in obedience. Well, how is the power then made available? Well, first of all, you need to remember who God is and what he has done. Okay, that's number one. Who is God? And the more you get wrapped up in him, the more you're going to get lost and the more you can trust him. What has he done? That's the evidence of his character. Second, you have to do what he commands. Okay? You've got to follow what he says. As the hymn writer put it simply, but very well, you need to trust and obey. Because faith is not passive. It acts upon what it says it believes. If you want to see the power of God act in your life, you have to act upon what you say you believe. You have to remember who God is, what he has done, and then believe what he has said and follow through on that belief in obedience to him. You have to follow him. And our knowledge and trust in God increases with our experience with him. Will we all agree with that? When you first became a Christian, you trust him to one extent. But the many years that you put in with all sorts of life situations, see his faithfulness, understand his word better, your faith and trust increases. And you can accomplish more. Because your faith is greater. It grows. And that's what he's talking about with the disciples. They had not yet come to a place where they had grown enough to do what he had said he could do. But that is why we learn to be content instead of becoming content instantly when we become Christians. It doesn't work that way. I wish it did. But it doesn't work that way. We have to grow into it. Here's another example. Joshua. You all know the story of Joshua. Now, Joshua first appears in uh, Exodus 17. Now, by Exodus 17, we know that Joshua had experienced all these wonderful miracles God had done in putting down the gods of Egypt and trampling Pharaoh's power and bringing his children out. He had seen all these things. He knew who God was. He had seen what God had done. That's his first experience. In chapter 17, we find that uh, Joshua is given a, uh, a command. Joshua is now general of the Israeli army. They approach the, the borders of Amalek and they are going to have a battle with them. And the Israeli army is not the superior force. Amalek is. It's larger, stronger. Remember, these are folks who have been slaves. What do they know about spears and swords? Next to nothing. Okay? But Joshua does not shy away from the task. Now, how many of you would want to go lead a ragtag army of slaves out to fight a hardened battle group? I don't think I'd want to do that. But Joshua has seen what God has done, and he trusts God for... It's in his hands. If God can do this without an army at all, I think he can take our little force, inexperienced, untried, untested, don't even know how to hold the sword correctly, 
and we'll beat these people. That's his faith and trust because he remembers who God is and trusts him for it. Now, at the same time, we have something interesting going on in the text there is Joshua goes out and they do defeat Amalek. But it's not because Joshua's a great general because he doesn't know what he's doing either. And it's not because his, his forces are superior. They're not. In fact, the text says it's because Aaron and Hur got on either side of Moses, had him sitting on a stool. One lifted up the right arm, one lifted up the other arm. And as long as Moses had his hands up, Joshua prevailed. When Moses got tired and they started slipping down, guess who started winning? Amalek. So Hur's on one side, Aaron's on the other. They're holding his hands up and that's how they win. Now, obviously, God can use any way he wants to win a battle. And if he wants to do it by having one guy standing around looking like this, that's up to God, isn't it? Because he's more powerful. That's how he wins. Now, the result of Joshua's obedience to God was an even greater confidence in him. And that resulted in the third principle of faith of Joshua's life. He trusted the Lord to work things out, so he accepted difficult circumstances without complaint. He learned that. He learned to be content in his circumstances because his understanding of God and his own commitment to obey him. Consider Joshua's assignment from Exodus. I have it there, uh, 20, actually it should be 24 through 32. Now this is where he goes with Moses up on Mount Sinai. Joshua gets halfway up. Moses says, you stay here. I'm going up to talk to God. And he goes on up. And Moses is up there for 40 days. Joshua's alone. Now, what would you do if you're waiting for some guy for 40 days? Well, let me ask you this. What do you do if you're waiting for your wife for an extra 10 minutes? Or if you're waiting for him to come home and he said he'd be home a half hour ago and dinner's cold now. You know, what do you do when he walks through the door? All right. Joshua's in it. 40 days he's waiting. Where's Moses? Now, in the meantime, down in the camp, they've gotten impatient and they have fallen into sin. So Joshua is between sin and God and waiting patiently. No complaints on Joshua's part. He waits for Moses. It is that character of faith bred into, John, uh, into Joshua, what he learned to be content that enabled him to end up leading the Israelites into the conquest of Canaan. He learned it. And the more he learned, the greater God used him. The key here in Philippians, again, is tying verse 11 to verse 13 through verse 12. Remember that definition I gave of contentment in verse 11? Self-sufficient, not needing assistance from the outside? Well, the context makes it clear here. Paul's not talking about not needing anything from outside himself. He's not talking about somehow that he is uh, self-autonomous. If he was doing that, he would be talking about existentialism or humanism. He's not talking about him himself. It's verse 13. Paul is clear. He is sufficient in Jesus Christ. Not by himself, but in Jesus Christ, he is totally sufficient for whatever is going to come because Christ is sufficient. As Paul walks in faith with Jesus, he can be content. For then, he is appropriating the knowledge of God he has gained. He's applied in practical trust of God, his great character, all of his promises, and he's content. I don't need anything else because God's going to provide. And he'll provide all sorts of ways, but I can trust him no matter what's going on. I don't have to manipulate situations. I can trust him, provide according to his promises. 
You cannot be content by yourself. You can only be content when it is you plus Jesus Christ together. For our God can overcome any circumstance and when you're walking with Him, He goes through it with you. If you're not walking with Him, guess what you get to do? Go all by yourself. And that's not contentment. But Him with you, no matter what comes. Folks, we need to be the way that Joshua and Paul were if we want the power of God in our lives so that we can live fully in this contentment. Self-sufficient in Christ for whatever is my circumstance of life. Whether it's great or not so great. Whether I'm in abundance or have next to nothing. Whether I'm feasting or I'm going hungry. Sufficient in Christ and trusting Him. It has to be done this way. I must know God That's your personal relationship with him. That's being a Christian. And then I need to remember who he is, his character, his attributes. I need to remember what he has done. Now, you cannot do that if you are not in the Scriptures, can you? This is the book that God has given us. He's revealed to himself who he is, what he is like, all of his attributes, and what he has done in this. If you don't know this, you can't know God. If you don't know this, you can't know what he has done. If you don't know what he's done, how are you going to trust him for what's going on in your own life? You've got to know the book. Second, you need to trust and obey him. If you know him, you've got to believe what he says about himself and apply that. That is trust. Faith, again, is not left out on its own. It applies itself in trust. Trust means I obey God because I believe him. And then, with submission to these principles and precepts of this word, I submit to God's sovereignty with rejoicing. That's applying the whole chapter here in, in chapter 4. Rejoice in all things. Again, I say rejoice. I submit to God's sovereignty regardless of circumstances. Now, my attitude has to be one of rejoicing, not because of the circumstances, because you may not like the circumstances. You may hate the circumstance. But if Christ is with you, you have a reason to rejoice. That's what he's talking about here. Lord, thank you that I am here, not because I like what's going on, but because you are here with me and there's no place I'd rather be than where you are. Remember that you, as a Christian died with Christ and were buried with Him and you rose up to newness of life in Him, you have His resurrection power living in you. You were crucified with Christ, remember Galatians 2.20, and the life that you live is no longer your own, it's Christ living through you. That's the power of God right there. And you have to live in that power, not being controlled by circumstances, but be controlled by Him. Remember, the Lord is in charge. You belong to Him. You walk with him, he will see you through anything that comes. But again, your attitude must be one of, are you seeking the Lord's will? That's the quest. And then being thankful for whatever opportunity he gives you to demonstrate your love and trust for him. Now, if you take your eyes off Christ and you put them on your circumstances, you're going to end up back in chapter 2 with murmuring and grumbling. And murmuring and grumbling always ultimately ends up against God. Okay? And that will block God's power in your life. So seeking His will, you can do that. 
Remember those life situations I gave you a couple weeks ago? These are things that have happened to people I know. Real things. Could you be content in those circumstances? People at work or school don't like you. Your in-laws don't like you and they're trying to interfere in your marriage. That's a tough one. You go outside, you get in your car and you find someone smashed into it. None of us like that. You get home, your house is burglarized. Someone's got in there, they not only stole things, but they messed it all up. Or worse, you get home and all you have is smoking ruins. Everything you own is gone. You suddenly find yourself unemployed. You're mugged. You're arrested and jailed for something you did not do. Your spouse develops some sort of severe physical handicap. What you used to do, you can no longer do. Your life is now going to be spent taking care of her or reverse it. You find out you cannot have children of your own. Your child dies or you're diagnosed with an incurable terminal disease. In every one of those circumstances, you can be content if you remember who is God, what has he done, and then will obey his commandments and follow the principles of his word while keeping in mind that we are living with eternity in view, not just the present. Now, starting next week, it's going to take us at least two weeks to go over this. I'm going to take each one of these situations and some additional ones, and we're going to go through and apply exactly those truths to them so that you can see how the power of God is to be working through your life no matter what the circumstances. So it's going to be...